Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese president has ordered an all-out rescue operation for those missing or trapped in devastating floods and geological disasters. In a bid to safeguard national security and interests, China has announced export controls on civilian drones. What could this mean for the future of the technology? Meanwhile, China's top economic planner has unveiled detailed measures to bolster the private economy. How will that supercharge the Chinese economic growth? You're listening to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping has called for all-out search and rescue of the people missing or trapped in floods. Heavy downpours have hit China's Beijing-Tianjin-Hebei region, affected by Typhoon Doxuri, which made its landfall in the country's east Fujian province on Friday. The Finance Ministry and Ministry of Emergency Management have offered 110 million yuan for the region in flood relief. Shi Jiazhuang in Hebei province has also suffered flooding. Ning Hong went to the city not far from the capital to find out more about the cleaning efforts. To combat the issue of urban water logging, personnel from urban management system are on the move, racing to conduct crucial operations, ensuring that debris is cleaned promptly from drainage outlets. In response to the current rain situation, we've sprung into action, activating our emergency plan. All units are standing by, working tirelessly on the front lines to safeguard against flooding and ensure everyone's safe passage through the city. As the heavy rainfall persists, over 7,300 flood control personnel have been deployed throughout Shijiazhuang city. They were dispatched to various streets and underground bridges to addressing urgent issues like sinking roads before they escalate. Citywide, our drainage team is on high alert, with all hands on deck at 33 pump stations and underground bridges. Our actions are driven by real-time rain data, adjusting pump operations accordingly. Additionally, we have opened all the water barriers on rivers to ensure smooth flow and to prevent further complications. To ensure the safety of citizens, the Traffic Management Department has deployed police officers to guard critical areas like underpasses, overpasses, and railway bridges. Constant monitoring of water levels is allowing them to take swift action, implementing temporary traffic control measures to prevent accidents and protect the well-being of the city's residents. That was Ning Hong reporting from Shijiazhuang. So for more on this, let's bring in Wu Changhua, CEO of Beijing Future Innovation Center and Executive Director of Professional Association for China's Environment. Thanks for joining us, Changhua. Thank you for having me again. We have witnessed extreme rainfall and a high risk of disasters as rainstorms swept the country's northern regions. Tell us more about this round of downpours. How did it form and become so destructive? Does it have anything to do with climate change? Of course, we live through climate change at this very moment, and we are experiencing, as part of the reflection of more intense and more frequent natural disasters, so northern part of China has been going through this super, we call it a super high typhoon and uh, uh, dark story. And mm-hmm. that's why northern part of the country, particularly around the Beijing area, has been going through the extreme storms. The strongest storm is probably ever hit more than China these days. And what's more worrisome is that there is another typhoon named the Kanung approaching now. So mm-hmm. we're going to expect to move. Uh, landfall, uh, terrain, uh, terrestrial rings probably, so we need to get more prepared. Uh, as a part of the process, I think the emergency response system that the China has put together is literally going to be a test, um, particularly around the, you know, typhoon, flooding, superstorms, and particular testing uh, the urban systems as well as the infrastructure. Uh, so it's really sad to see we, we have life lost uh, and as well as missing, and uh, you know, infrastructure like roads closed, the transportation system has been interrupted, and we need to learn with that process how to how to make sure 
to build our urban system in particular uh, to ensure the resilience to go to be able actually to go through survive uh, more intensive, more frequent, and stronger uh, storms. Mm-hmm. Changhua, could you please elaborate more on the impact? How much impact had the rain uh, had on the northern regions, especially in Beijing, Tianjin, Hebei region this time? Well, I think uh, I'm not in Beijing, so I'm going through literally uh, this process. And uh, uh, in terms of the impact, if you look at the particular in the western part of Beijing, uh, where flash flooding uh, definitely you know impacting people's lives, livelihoods. Uh, as well as the infrastructure. And uh, so urban system in particular is put up under the test saying uh, in most of the cases it probably were not prepared. Beijing back in 2012, we had a sort of a similar experience before. And so back then, I think we had nearly 80 lives lost. Uh, just imagining for a modern city and uh, like the capital Beijing, uh, which probably has one of the strongest infrastructure, most, most resilient infrastructure uh, in throughout the country, uh, somehow we still have to suffer such sort of losses there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a child, almost a decade apart, we are still living through it. Uh, so that really has put on the table some serious questions in terms of, uh, you know, under the more intensive climate change, the more frequent, the stronger, and the more intensive uh, natural disasters like a flooding, like a drought, heat waves, whatever, whether our system building infrastructure, uh, as well as food and energy systems, whether we are really strong enough to go through that to survive that. Uh, so on one side, we need to rethink about uh, you know, designing the standards, but in the meantime, we need to really get better prepared for emergency response. As I said early on, Chinese government has already put together mm-hmm. the emergency response system, right? Through, you know, through pre-early warning, uh, through preparedness, precaution, prevention, protection, uh, getting more, mobilizing more resource, human resources, as well as financial resources uh, nationwide, actually, to support the disaster hit areas. But still, uh, as facts tell us, it's hard to avoid, totally avoid the loss of life and also the interruption of our infrastructure, the operation of the transportation system, uh, as well as actually challenging our food system as well as mm-hmm. energy system. As you mentioned, the communication and warning systems are in place to alert residents about the natural disasters like the typhoons and heavy rains. Could you please elaborate on how effective have they been in minimizing casualties and uh, property damage during this uh, recent event, especially compared with previous years? Yes, definitely. I think a major difference is that now we have more developed alert systems. For instance, in the last few days, Beijing in particular has been on the highest level alert, a red alert uh, system, and meaning most of the people basically don't really go to work, kids don't go to school, and uh, so a lot of offices basically shut off so that they use the, the, you know, the transportation running. And uh, uh, I think that really helps tremendously. In the meantime, uh, the government has mobilized you know, hundreds of thousands of human resources actually providing also financial support to identify the, the probably the most dangerous, uh, you know, most vulnerable uh, areas in our infrastructure, energy system, uh, to make sure and to minimize the losses as much as possible. And I think as a result, and uh, we definitely have managed to reduce the loss of life and the damages uh, to the infrastructure. And uh, I don't have the number at this moment, as so we'll see. Uh, particularly now, if you look at the number of life losses there back in 2012, Beijing had uh, you know, nearly 80 people died. And now, of course, it's unfortunate we have a dozen and people have lost their life already in the meantime, mm. and that doesn't sort of still missing uh, somehow, uh, as I said, and there's still a long way to go. There's still a lot of work to be done and to make sure we really prevent such kind of heavy losses uh, mm. in the future. Uh, but at this moment, I think the alert system in particular, uh, you know, from the government, the system, as well as people really working together uh, with the government to say if it's alert, I don't want to work, I stay most at home to reduce outdoor activities as much as possible 
uh, to avoid and uh, to reduce the danger and the risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of government's response, how do you evaluate the government's rescue response this time? Beside the prevention work, how is the government from different levels coordinating with the local to provide rescue and relief efforts? Well, as you said, I, you know, we're still living in it. Hopefully, somehow we'll get a better understanding from, from that number of the data. I do not have that handy at this moment. Um, but uh, as I said, I think the people started to, to really get used to this sort of system. Say, if there is a learning system, you know, for every individual of the city in the region, we need to pay, we need to respond, right? We need to uh, follow the instructions and uh, to avoid some more necessary outdoor activities uh, as much as possible. Uh, but as I said, it's really unfortunate that we are still uh, witnessing losses of life. And yes. uh, you know, losses of infrastructure, properties, the values. I believe actually the damage to our food system as well as challenging to our energy system, transportation system. Uh, we will be able to identify major gaps that remain after uh, the disasters, and uh, hopefully somehow that will provide more valuable instruction and guidance to make sure the future urban, uh, you know. Uh, Developments as well as, you know, uh, after a disaster, rebuild, recovery, uh, you know, make sure uh, for another round of uh, disasters will be able to have better resilience and the ability to adapt and to uh, if not totally avoid the damages, somehow to minimize that damage as much as possible. Speaking of that, in the aftermath of these devastating floods, what more preventive measures do you think the government could consider to mitigate similar incidents in the future and strengthen the region's resilience to natural disasters? Well, I think there is a bigger question already on the table challenging both the policymakers and experts, uh, particularly for the urban areas, you know, how resilient our urban system uh, could be really, you know, in order to respond to more intense and more frequent and more durable, actually, natural disasters. As as I said early on, we are living through, uh, you know, climate changes, more intensive climate changes there. So we know uh, we're going to go through more intense natural disasters like the flooding, like heat waves that we went through actually in the last couple of months. At the beginning northern part of China, uh, you know, Beijing went through the highest, you know, the, the worst heat waves actually back in late June, and and July has proven to be the warmest month on the planet at this moment. And now we're going through uh, the flooding, you know, and uh, uh, storms and the flooding, and uh, uh, I think it's, that's the biggest question probably on the table. Uh, say, okay, for resilience. So urban development is defined and you can really adopt and breathe the key element of resilience from now on. Mm-hmm. Uh, like two years ago, Zhengzhou went through, Zhengzhou in Henan province went through, and, you know, really thin flooding. And uh, back then we talked about, you know, something, the solution for the Sponge city. And Zhengzhou was one of the best models. And uh, when it was put under the test actually to go through uh, that level of thin flooding, and obviously, and uh, was not strong enough to, you know, to, to prevent, you know, to avoid any losses there. I think the Beijing probably now is another sort of case. Thanks, Changhua, for taking the time to speak with us today with your perspectives and analysis. As we continue to monitor the situation closely, we hope that the combined efforts of the government, local communities will bring much needed relief to affected areas. That was Wu Changhua, CEO of Beijing Future Innovation Center and Executive Director of a Professional Association for China's Environment. You are listening to Road Today. Stay with us. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. Welcome back to Road Today. 
China has announced export controls on certain civilian drone and drone-related equipment in a bid to safeguard its national security and interests. The Chinese Commerce Ministry says it's the international norm to implement export controls on drones that might be converted to military use. As that, the measures reflected China's commitment as a responsible major nation that upholds world peace. The export controls will take effect on September 1st and will be in place for a period of two years. So for more on this, our reporter Xu Yawen spoke with Dr. Zhang Fan, associate professor at Beijing Normal University. What specific drones and their related equipment will be regulated under this new policy? Right. So this um, this new export control mainly target those um, industrial drones that can be fitted for uh, for terrorist purposes. Um, for example, it looks at drones that can stay in the air for uh, more than 30 minutes. Uh, it can fly beyond the operator's line of sight. Very importantly, it looks at drones that can take off with a weight of more than seven kilograms. What that means is um, this, this kind of drones can carry a very large bomb. And as recent events show us, this kind of bombs with that kind of weight can be quite dangerous. So this is the kind of drones, heavy lifting in the, uh, industrial drones that the, uh, the new export control looks to, uh, to regulate. Well, you talk about the industrial drones. Actually, I, I saw that uh, this new policy will also be applied in civilian drones that could be converted into military uh, use of drones. So could you elaborate more on that part as well? Because this is not only about um, industrial drones, right? Yeah. Civilian, um, the opposite is military. Um, so the industrial drones would also count as civilian drones. So they're not specifically designed for military purposes. Mm. So this, this is a subclass of, of, of civilian drones um, that we're talking about. Okay. Then how do you view this fresh policy announced by China? Because we know starting in 2002, China has gradually implemented export controls on drones with the scope of control and technical standards in line with international practices. So what's your take on the timing and the country's modest expansion of the scope of its drone control this time? Right. Um, so so the, uh, this modest expansion is needed. So first of all, the, the expansion part comes in the form of a, a end-user agreement. So now whenever a Chinese high-performance drone, civilian drone, gets exported, the purchaser needs to sign an agreement um, to promise uh, either they are the end user or they show who the actual end user is. Um, so, so the drone can't be sold into conflict zones, that's, that kind of things, via sort of second-hand, third-hand intermediaries. The reason why that has to happen is because although in the past, either the Chinese state or the uh, Chinese manufacturers voluntarily restricted their exports to the conflict zones, both sides of the conflicts, of any conflicts. The, the measures didn't really stop these uh, this resellers, these intermediaries, so purchasing Chinese drones and then giving them into the, uh, into the, into the war zones. So this is why uh, this modest expansion uh, has to happen. Well, we have also learned that China says the measures aim to prevent the use of drones for non-peaceful purposes, and the policy does not target any specific country or region. Then, considering that some drones have been converted from civilian to military use, despite that's against China's will and law, and uh, also Chinese company Dajiang announced in April last year it was pulling out of Russia and Ukraine to prevent these drones from being used in combat. Given all of that information, so how will this policy help in maintaining regional peace and stability? Right. I think China's stance in this conflict is always neutral. It's trying to sort of uh, to get the both parties to come to a negotiating table and stop fighting. And so China is not sending sending arms to either party. For drones in particular, it's perfect for greater warfare. It can't change the outcome of the war, but it can protract the war and cause a lot more civilian casualties. I mean, it's Slavic people killing Slavic people. So some people, some in the West or elsewhere, may not either care or, or be happy about it. 
But I think China's foreign policy uh, always look at the long, longer term. You know, when when brothers stop fighting, even it's um, as acrimonious as this, um, you know, eventually they'll look at people who um, who try to stop them fighting as friends rather than um, rather than the ones that's, that hand them um, knives. Um, so 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 China, I think from from China's perspective, it doesn't really want to uh, want to be be this party that hands knives to to people, especially these kind of things that. Can cause mass civilian casualty without any real purpose uh, that, that that can overturn the, the war without. So yeah, I, I think in, in that respect, so China is, is trying um, trying to maintain sort of regional peace uh, by depriving unnecessary civilian casualties. That would um, not just from a humanitarian point of view would be would be horrible. Mm. Also because the um, that kind of attacks would increase hostility between the warring parties, making sort of negotiations even more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that factors into the consideration as well. Can we say because of drone technology in China has rapidly developed in recent years, and therefore its application scenarios expanded, and uh, that's why we see. In some conflict zone, it has been utilized by certain parties. Right.、Um, so, so China makes the、uh, the vast majority of the world's、uh, civilian drones. So, if they're to convert any of those into、um, into、uh, into military use,、uh, even terrorist use, then、uh, obviously China has to has to has to take actions to prevent that happening because. Just by pure probability, you will be a Chinese drone by the, by the proportion of production. And in in the past few years or so, yes, the the control, the, the self flight capabilities of Chinese drones、uh, have increased tremendously, and its its efficiency increased tremendously, which means it can fly for very long、um, without running into problems. So that gives the、uh, potential terrorist an edge because the person doesn't need to be near the site.、Um, so, so you can't sort of prevent certain people、mm-hmm. to, to to prevent this kind of、um, this kind of attacks. And also, there's other issues with drones that can fly in formation. For example, if you have thousands of drones that fly, each carrying a little bomb, then、uh, then that kind of swarm is is a big problem. So, so. This time, the control also、uh, looks at that aspect of,、mm-hmm. of military conversion.、Um, so yes, in the in the past few years, past decade or so, the drone technology advancement, especially the Chinese drones that comes with very high spec at low prices, really made them suitable, unfortunately, for use in, in the military conflict. As you said, Dr. Zhang, China is a leading developer and exporter of drones. And also, another data suggests over 50% of drones sold in the U.S. market are made by the Chinese company Dajiang. So, how will this policy affect China's drone exports and the industry in general, or will will it affect the industry at all? Right.、Um, so the so the actual proportion of drones that actually flows into the the conflict zones is、uh, is minimal. So that. Wouldn't affect anything, so cutting out that market is is not a problem.、Um, for the, for for the rest of legitimate users, it's extra sort of paperwork. So they have to sign something to promise they're the end user and stuff like that,、uh, which shouldn't be too much of a problem because these are industrial zones,、uh, industrial drones.、Um, so the user, the purchasers, would mostly be companies.、Um, so they can handle a little bit of extra. Paperwork. This kind of paperwork is not special. I mean,、uh, the U.S. has has them all over the place. You have to you have to promise,、uh, you know, not to send send it down to, to 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 unknown parties. So I don't foresee this as、uh, being a, a major hindrance to、uh, to legitimate sales.、Um, so yeah, no,、mm-hmm. that shouldn't be a concern. That was Dr. Zhang Fan, associate professor at Beijing Normal University. More to come. China unveils detailed measures to bolster the private economy. This is World Today. We'll be back after a short break.
Welcome back to World Today with Miguelena in Beijing. China's top economic planner has introduced a detailed set of measures to bolster the private economy. The initiatives aim to address key issues faced by private enterprises, boost their confidence, and foster growth. Private firms will be encouraged to engage in profitable national projects, issue real estate investment trust products, and lead technological advancements in vital areas like industrial software and artificial intelligence. Additionally, tax reductions for research and development, faster export rebates, and improved inclusive financial support will be provided. So, for more on the measures, joining us on the line is Liu Zhiqing, senior fellow of the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So, in recent、uh, policy measures aimed at bolstering the private economy, what's your overall assessment of these twenty-eight measures? I should say that these two new twenty-eight new measures are very important signal to the. Uh, market, especially to those that private sector, as we know, in the past several months,、uh, in one year, that the central government has really、uh, paid great attention to、mm-hmm. support、uh, the private companies to further develop and boost the economy. And in order to protect the interests of the private companies, the central government has done its best and made all efforts in all different fields that to. Show the sincerity and the honesty of the government to boost the economy. So we should say that uh, uh, if we see the central government and the state council not long ago they issued a, a new document to support the private sector, but this today or the day newly twenty eight new measures are concrete、uh, road and、uh, tell us that how to go to the target. If the central government has already set up the target of the private companies, now they tell you that how to go to the target, how to go to the goal, how to realize our uh, this uh, uh, purpose to、uh, modernize our、uh, economy, especially by promoting the private sections.、Mm-hmm. Could you please elaborate in what context do you think the Chinese government is introducing these policy stimulus measures? What does the government expect to achieve? I think the government is willing to achieve that the, the confidence and the trust from the private companies in order to make the, our economic development more smoothly and healthily and sustainably. As we know that the, the major points from these new regulations. Is to build up the confidence and the trust between government and the, between、uh, government and the market and the、uh, private companies. Because in the past uh, uh, time that we had some、uh, difficulties and challenges among this field between government and the market and the private companies. So in this way that they have already、uh, regulated a new law system and emphasize the implementation of this system. How to help. How to monitor, how to supervise all the private companies, but mainly is trying to support the private companies to get a better、uh, result or a better benefits from the reform and opening up. Mm-hmm. Given the new measures, the tax reduction、uh, for research and development, faster export、uh, rebates, etc., what specific strategies do you believe will have the most significant impact? As we know, that the tax reduction is not a new tool for the government. As for the other private companies, they are already knowing this uh, uh, impact of this on the market. Actually, I think that most of the enterprises are not only willing to to have the tax and the fees reduction, but also they should have the equality for the market access, especially、mm-hmm. for those that sensitive and crucial. Uh, field of the、uh, market, and the、uh, secondly, also they should have a, a equal、uh, respect as the state-owned companies, the, because they are always feeling a little bit lower position or lower respect that, that, that compared to the、uh, state-owned companies.、Mm-hmm. So when the competition came together with the state-owned companies, the private sector always has some more challenges and difficulties. That's why I think. The most strategic that、uh, these twenty-eight new measures help 
try to make the gap between uh, the private and the student companies and the market uh, narrower and even more effective that to help the private companies to do more business, to make more contributions. Mm-hmm. To create a better environment for the private sectors to compete. We also know the role of platforms in the economy has been highlighted in the recent measures. How will the government strike a balance between encouraging the healthy development of platform enterprises and ensuring a fair competition in this realm? Actually, we know that the platform economy has played a great role in China's development. Mm-hmm. As we know, the platform can gather all intelligent and talented people with new technologies. So platform is really a good uh, stage for all players, market players, to, to show their performance. But uh, as we know that in the past, uh, because of the law uh, system mechanism and the supervision problems and the challenges that the platform uh, played some uh, negative role or impact on the market development. So how to make this uh, problem in a better, healthy way to solve this problem. This is really a good challenge for the government, especially for those uh, uh, state-owned companies and also for the court and also supervisor, especially for those planners. So how to make this uh, problem solved in a healthy way? This is the best uh, solution for the government that to find a way that uh, accepted and equal for all market players. This is a very important precondition for development. The extension of support for small giants and high-tech enterprises includes measures like fast-track intellectual property protection. Uh, what's your take on this? How will this foster innovation and attract investment in the tech sector? As we know, in the past year, the most headache problem that are faced by the private company, they really have some problem for the track uh, uh, system. This is made these companies in a more, uh, how to say, that a difficult time. And also, as we know, that uh, uh, this is a historical problem for Chinese companies. We have the so-called triangle or the triangle uh, debt chains that between companies that have already uh, owned the debts and uh, related to each other make some uh, uh, private companies more... uh, uncertainty and under difficulties and more pressures. So this system mechanism can really play a good role and help these companies to get rid of this additional burden that in order to get a better boosting forces to further develop their own high technology and also for the private AI talented people in order to try to get the highest level of the world market. So we should really give them the more booster and to support them for their new innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Chinese government has recently introduced uh, a series of economic measures, as you mentioned earlier. Based on these measures, how do you see China's economic development in the second half of the year? I think in the second half of the year, the China will face more challenges. As we know, that some more uncertainties and challenges will occur uh, during international market because the dual circulation, domestic and globally, both should be really, uh, good uh, combined together, and a good balance point should be found out and uh, well protected. Especially when we see that the private sector. Uh, is regarded as a fresh force in China's modernization. So we should know that how to protect them, how to uh, help them to to be uh, stronger, to be faster, to be more intelligent, that uh, to deal with all challenges from global market. So in this way, I should say that uh, China and all uh, enterprises, no matter is a private or state-owned company, should work together as one that uh, to hold for the only sole goal that the Chinese modernization to work together, to cooperate together, to find the best way to get the highest development, especially in the high-tech cooperation. 
So in this way, that I think these regulations can really help these uh, companies to realize their goal. Thank you very much, Liu Zhiqing, for your time and insights. That's Liu Zhiqing, Senior Fellow of the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. China's Defense Ministry spokesperson Tan Kefei has said China firmly opposes the U.S. providing weapons to China's Taiwan region. He called on the U.S. to hold all military liaison with Taiwan, adding that the U.S. decision is encouraging provocative actions by separatists, increasing cross-straits tensions. Tan's remarks came after the U.S. announcement a military aid package worth $345 million U.S. dollars for the island of Taiwan. According to Washington, we'll send manned portable air defense systems, intelligence and civilians' capabilities, firearms and missiles to the island. This marked the first time the U.S. has transferred equipment to Taiwan Island under what is known as the Presidential Drawdown Authority, which allows the U.S. to pull weapons and other stocks directly and quickly from Defense Department inventories. So how will the move further fuel tensions between China and the U.S. over the Taiwan question? To delve into this and more, joining us on the line is Dr. Liu Kuangyu, Research Fellow with the Institute of Taiwan Studies at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Liu. Thank you. Good evening. First of all, how do you view the responses of China's defense ministry? How serious is the U.S. decision to send military equipment to China's Taiwan region? Uh, while China's response has sent a clear and powerful signal, um, it clarified the nature of this military assistance to provoke the red line of China-U.S. relations and China's core interests, and directly point out the sinister intentions of harmful consequences behind many uh, the military connections with the U.S. of the U.S. with Taiwan, and also demonstrated a firm will and sufficient capabilities of the Chinese military to defend our national sovereignty. And the U.S. military uh, assistance to Taiwan poses new challenges to cross-race stability. First, we should make clear that any form of the so-called U.S. military collusion with Taiwan is illegal, dangerous, and a challenge to peace in Taiwan Strait and a kidnapping of the security interests of the people from Taiwan. And on this basis, we can see that the U.S. Congress and, and the Biden administration in close coordination are constantly developing and developing and enriching their policy toolbox uh, using all kinds of tricks to accelerate the arming of Taiwan and continuously worsening the security uh, situation in the Taiwan Strait and the China-U.S. relationship, China-U.S. relations. Mm -hmm. The U.S. transfer of equipment to Taiwan Island under the presidential drawdown authority marks a significant development. What's your take on the move? Uh, Why is Washington in a hurry to arm the island? Uh, First, we should see the Biden administration's special emphasis on this use of so-called presidential drawdown authority to to operate the military assistance to Taiwan. Uh, It's more of a political gesture. Uh, Mm He tries to secretly first uh, to the so-called quasi-official relationship uh, between the U.S. and Taiwan. We know that since the 1960s, the U.S. has no longer provided the so-called military assistance to Taiwan, and the Biden administration is now citing the Foreign Assistance Act of 1961 to legitimize its first assistance to Taiwan, instead of citing the National Defense Authorization Act of 2023, which has been mentioned many times by the media. And we know that in the 1960s, when uh, before the establishment of diplomatic relations uh, between China and the U.S. and so-called breakdown, uh, break off diplomatic relations uh, between U.S. and Taiwan. So this might be a political signal that we should not be ignored. Uh, that should not be ignored. Could it be a symbol of the U.S. government to uh, let the U.S.-Taiwan uh, relations return to the so-called quasi-official state of 50 years ago? We should have to take a look at the future when the U.S. government's form uh, publication of list of the list of uh, assistance items, how they describe the object of acceptance of this assistance, is it Taiwan Authority or the so-called Taiwan's rep- uh, Taipei's representative office in the United States? And second, uh, the ministry uh, assistance also to answer for the pressure from the Congress. We, we mentioned the NDAA 2023 last year, which uh, authorized the, the use of of this PDA from this Department of Defense to withdraw up 
withdraw up to one billion U.S. dollars worth of defense equipment or services、mm. to Taiwan. While Congress has also continued to urge the Biden administration to speed up the deli-、uh, delivery of weapons to Taiwan,、uh, however, compared to the delivery uh, delayed and del-、uh, delayed delivery of up to twenty、uh, billion dollars、uh, in the U.S. arms sales to Taiwan, the amount of this military assistance is much smaller. So the Biden administration is posing、uh, just merely a, a gesture、uh, of little practical significance to show、uh, its so-called cooperation with the Congress. But China's defense ministry stressed that、uh, the Taiwan question concerns China's core interests and is a red line in China-U.S. relations that must not be crossed. This has been emphasized tons of times by Chinese side. But、yes. how do you understand the U.S. constantly challenging China's core interest and the bottom line? Well,、uh, I see it as a strategy practice of the United States to use Taiwan to contain and encircle China. Out of the need to safeguard its hegemonic interests, on one hand,、uh, the United States needs to continue to use this to show its position against China's sovereignty claims, including Taiwan and also on South China Sea, etc. And second, it is also using this question to consolidate its alliance system, encircling, encircling Taiwan,、uh, China.、Uh, the motivation behind the, U- the U.S. military aid to Taiwan is also very complex.、Mm-hmm. It's not a single line logic. Uh, but in,、uh, includes military, economic, and cognitive,、uh, cognitive warfare, and many other considerations. The first we can see that the main target of U.S. military、uh, assistance currently,、uh, the main target of this assistance is actually Ukraine, and now、uh, they are adding Taiwan to this list. It's also a deliberate attempt to create、uh, some sort of correlation between today's Ukraine and tomorrow's Taiwan discourse. And also shows that the, U- the U.S. is copying or innovating、uh, ways to arm Taiwan with references to、uh, of the Ukrainian、uh, back- battlefield.、Um, at the same time, we should see that so-called U.S. military as-、uh, assistance to Taiwan is more like a decoy.、Uh, I mean, the U.S. has never made a loss in arms sale business with Taiwan, but instead using Taiwan as a, ca- a cash machine. Now the U.S. provides Taiwan with American-made weapons. In a seemingly free way,、uh, in fact, is constantly excluding Taiwan's own military industry, deepening its dependence on the United States, and allowing Taiwan to use these weapons is more like Taiwan Army become the eyes and ears of the United States, and also, and of course, cannon cannon fodder the,、uh, for the U.S.、Uh, rather than increasing Taiwan's security. In the future, on the basis of such、uh, petty profits, the United States will, will further increase. Uh, is asking price for the DPP administration in Taiwan and exploit the Taiwan people through more arms sales and trade and so on.、Mm-hmm. Thanks, Dr. Liu, for your perspective on the complexity surrounding U.S. provocation on China's Taiwan region and the implications it might have on the regional dynamics. That's Dr. Liu Kuangyu, research fellow with the Institute of Taiwan Studies at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Official data shows that eurozone economy returned to positive growth between March and June. Gross domestic products rose by 0.3 percent in the second quarter compared to the previous three months. Headline inflation for the eurozone fell to 5.3 percent in July. The European Central Bank raised interest rates by a quarter of a percentage point to 3.75 percent last week. So, for more on this, Zhao Yang spoke with Dr. Yao Shujie, a Changkong professor of economics at Chongqing University. So, the European Central Bank raised the interest rate again last week, which is it's a nice consecutive hike. So, do you think the ECB having a clear view of the path ahead when it comes to interest rates and tackling the inflation? Yes, I think the only policy instrument for the central bank. Whether the the Federal Reserve or the ECB, which represent two of the most powerful economy block at the moment,、uh, to tackle the hyperinflation and to maintain macroeconomy stability, the most important instrument is the interest rate because they can't do much about it using any other policy. So、uh, yes, the ECB, the the European Central Bank. Certainly, have a clear objective of containing the hyperinflation. 
But uh, potentially there are some uh, underlying issues which may not be clearly to the general public. The mm. most important issue is that the uh, hyperinflation in, in Europe and also uh, to some extent the United States is not necessarily related to the, uh, the booming demand in the domestic market. It's probably due to the weakening of the economy fundamental and also the un- uncertainty in the international uh, level, particularly the energy supply and food supply. These are the two most important driving factors that are a significant pressure on the consumer's market, driving up the consumer price index. Mm. And uh, by raising the interest rate, actually it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it can contain the inflation, which is uh, a positive one. But the negative sign is that by raising the inflation when the economy is actually stagnating or weakening, it has a potential damaging effect on the future economy. And this is why the central bank has to be uh, cautious about how much the interest rate could be raised because they couldn't raise too rapidly and too, too high to contain the inflation without jeopardizing the future economy. Uh, growth potential. Mm. And we are seeing the eurozone GDP grow by 0.3% in the second quarter, which was better than the previous quarter where there was stagnation. But in eurozone, they have great variabilities. For example, the German economy is not doing well. In fact, it was stagnating rather than growing. So how much of a concern is Germany's economic performance, which is uh, the powerhouse economy of the EU? Yeah, the the German economy has been hit very hard compared to uh, many other member states, certainly because of the German economy driven by uh, export. And now the the German export has been uh, facing tough competition from the rest of the world, particularly from the emerging markets such as China. So uh, the competitive advantage of German high-value manufacturing export uh, is facing uh, this kind of uh, uncertainty in the future. Uh, on the other hand, the consumer demand is also uh, fairly weak because of the hyperinflation. In, and Germany, because it's the highest, the richest country in the European Union, and particularly the Eurozone. If Germany suffers, I think, or the, the Eurozone would also suffer as well. Mm. So this is why we are very concerned about the sustainability or the stability of the German economy to perform well in the future. Mm-hmm. And what about France? France actually doing surprisingly better than is anticipated. And French GDP grew by 0.5% in the second quarter compared with the first quarter. So what are the main factors behind that? Um, I think the, the France performance in the in the second quarter presumably is due to one of export performance. Uh, and um, by the German economy, I think export uncertainty could also loom large for the, the French uh, economy. So the uh, you know the half point increase in the GDP in France, although it is very encouraging, but uh, one have to be cautious whether these kinds of growth momentum can continue in the second half of the year. Mm. And in my view, I don't think that France will be able to maintain this level of growth in the future. Mm. And this is, um, this is the, the kind of complicated issue that we have to, uh, you know, to deal with for the European uh, economy. Mm. And let's talk about the Eurozone again, because we saw that a headline inflation figure falling, but co-inflation is unchanged. So how do you explain that? And is it enough being done to tackle it? Well, um, 5.3% or it is encouraging to some extent that the hiking of the inflation has some positive effect on containing the inflation. At least it is not growing and, and uh, on demand is declining. Because uh, you remember last year, uh, the inflation was as high as 10.5%. So basically, by having the, the inflation rate, it's a tremendous achievement for the European zone. However, I think the central bank has not done enough in terms of containing the inflation because the target is 2%. 
So there will be still a significant gap between the target inflation and the real inflation. And also compared to, uh, to, to the United States, the United States has brought down the inflation rate from uh, some 8 to 9% to 3%. So uh, competitively, the United States is doing better than the European Union. Uh, but uh, you can see that the United States has been increasing the interest rate to uh, 5.25 to 5.75%, which is much higher than the Eurozone. Mm. Uh, the problem, the problem is that the European Union, they have been suffering during uh, a sequence of crises in the external market. The world financial crisis in 2008 and also the, the, the European debt crisis in 2010 and the, the UK exit from the European Union uh, also created much further blow to the European Union. Mm. And particularly, the most recent crisis, the Ukraine crisis, is another blow. So the European Union has been suffering uh, far more significantly than the United States. All those issues have bloomed very significant for the European to make it very challenging uh, to go ahead. That was Dr. Yao Shujie, a Chang Kong professor of economics at Chongqing University. That's all the time for this edition of World Today. A quick recap of today's headlines. The Chinese president has ordered the all-out rescue of people missing or trapped in floods and geological disasters. China announces fresh export controls of civilian drones to safeguard national security and interests. China unveils detailed measures to bolster the private economy. So to listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today, or you can follow us on Twitter, it's CDTN Radio. I'm Ge Anna. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.